Amen. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write. That name, Philadelphia, that word, it means brotherly love. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Philadelphia. Anybody ever been to Philadelphia? Handful of people, right? You go there, there's this huge building, and you go see a bell that's cracked and broken, right? That, that's what's there in Philadelphia. Uh, they're the founding fathers. That's where they met. A lot of work has been done to build up our nation where we are at today. Maybe you've had the joy of being able to go to Calvary Chapel, Philadelphia. That's a great place to be. Uh, the Philadelphia 76ers, they made a big trade at the trade deadline, right? Uh, maybe you like Philly cheesesteaks. Uh, I don't know if you know Philly cheesesteaks. The true way to have it is with cheese whiz. It's not with provolone. If you go to Philadelphia, a true Philly cheesesteak sandwich is with cheese whiz. And uh, remember Bobby Hargraves, he says, we met him at the conference there in Philly. And he goes, Philly cheesesteaks? That food is garbage compared to what you got in Miami, right? He goes, the Cuban sandwiches, the pan con bite, that's way better uh, than any Philly cheesesteak sandwich. And all of that has absolutely nothing uh, to do with the church in Philadelphia. <laughs> absolutely nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just for you to know, this is an ancient city there in Asia Minor. And that same horseshoe shape, that U-shaped uh, postal route that we've been talking about, this is the Philadelphia that is in question here. The Philadelphia being given this letter. Now we can apply it and we can look at our church and we can look at our own personal lives with Jesus. We know that there's no perfect churches. There's always that joke. If you actually find a perfect church and you begin to attend it, you're going to corrupt it and break its perfection, right? Why? Because each of us are sinners. Each of us are imperfect. Each of us, we bring our sin into question. Even as we've been going through the book of Leviticus, there's that feast with leavened bread and unleavened bread talking about the church age. And here, Philadelphia is not a perfect church, but it's a very, very good church. It's a faithful church. You see, out of the seven letters, only Smyrna and Philadelphia are given letters with no negative comments from Jesus Christ. They're not told anywhere where they're lacking, anywhere where they're sinning, anywhere where they need to get right. They're just commended for what they're doing, and they're encouraged to press on and hold on to what they're already doing. This ancient city of Philadelphia, it was situated 28 miles southeast of Sardis, and it was built by Atlas Philadelphius, the king of Pergamos. It was also known as Little Athens. Little Athens, because during the Grecian Empire, they used this city of Philadelphia to be able to evangelize the whole eastern world, all of Asia, to spread Greek language to spread the Greek way of life, and to spread the Greek civilization. That, that's what it was known for. It was known as a place where you'd walk through and you'd see the Olympian gods everywhere that you'd go. The city had tons of volcanic activity, so the soil was very fruitful. Philadelphia had many and many vineyards, so they would worship the god Bacchus, which many people still worship today. They just don't realize it. Bacchus is the ancient god of wine and drunkenness. And there's many people today that all they worship is wine. They'll tell you all about Jesus and why Jesus lets them drink all the wine that they please. And there's many people each weekend just looking to get drunk and hammered, serving and worshiping this god. Because this city was so close to volcanic activity, it was also prone to earthquakes. 
And the people growing fearful of these earthquakes would oftentimes, when an earthquake would start, they'd take all their family, as much as they could from their home. They would head to the hills and live in the hills for a season till things sort of settled and relaxed. In 17 AD, a great earthquake in the area completely destroyed Sardis and devastated the city of Philadelphia to the point where they had to completely rebuild the city. In terms of church history, this time of Philadelphia would be placed right around the time of the Great Awakening. From 1750 to about 1925, this would be the time of the church season of Philadelphia. Some people think it leads all the way up to the rapture that we're living with two different churches, Philadelphia and Laodicea. The time of the Great Awakening. There was the printing press which created Bibles in every person's hand. It wasn't just for the church leaders. It wasn't just in Latin. But now the Word of God was transcribed to the language of the normal person where they could read it on their own. During this time, there's also the great awakening to the rapture of Jesus Christ, right? This is an idea that died during the dark ages. Some people say the rapture, that's a new idea. That's not really biblical. No, the rapture is an old idea. We're going to read about it today. It's just during the dark ages, they clung to the theology of the Roman Catholic Church that was Rome mixed with the church, and they really messed up a lot of theology and they got rid of the rapture because they believed that God was going to just kill all of the Jewish people. Many of these church fathers believed that Jewish people were made for fodder for the fires of hell. So they got rid of the rapture, got rid of the tribulation, got rid of the nation of Israel's eyes being opened in the middle of the tribulation. But the mix of the Bible and going back to the faithfulness of the word, the mix of being obedient to Jesus and the true authentic person of Jesus and the eminence of Jesus' rapture and return really birthed this great awakening within Europe and within all of America, things that we're still tasting of today. Second half of the first verse we looked at, Jesus, he uses these characteristics. He says, these things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts and shuts and no one opens. Now you guys have been here. Jesus usually picks a few attributes from where? From Revelation chapter 1, right? You guys are saying it under your breath. It's okay, right? The second half of Revelation chapter 1, all the characteristics that John gives us here, that's usually where Jesus goes back to. He picks one or two attributes and now he writes a letter to one of the seven churches. However, for this church of Philadelphia, Jesus calls back to attributes, not in Revelation 1, but attributes found throughout the Old Testament and one specific prophecy found in the book of Isaiah. He begins by saying, he who is holy. Jesus refers to himself as holy. And this is not just the idea of being righteous and holy as, as we think of right within the book of Leviticus. But this is also speaking to how separate God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are from everything else. There's one creator and then there's all of creation. This is how separate Jesus Christ is from the rest of the universe and from the rest of us as living creatures. We are created. He is creator. He is separate from us entirely. And yet he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. My kids, I don't know if it's been in 
Sunday school or at school, but they've been talking about often how God is the boss. God is the boss. And that's good. That's great. Uh, except every once in a while, my youngest will say, Dad, Dad, you're not the boss. God is the boss, right? <laughs> then I have to remind them, God is the boss, and he's made Dad, Dad the boss of this house, right? And it's true. Because God is creator and everything else is creation, God is indeed the boss. He is the judge. He's the one that has written the rule book for our lives and for the entire universe. God refers to himself as the Holy One 45 times within the Old Testament. As we've been going through the book of Leviticus, you can just write these down. You know these verses, Leviticus 11 verse 45. For I am the Lord who brings you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. Therefore you shall be holy for I am holy. Leviticus 20, verse 7, God once again says, Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. So again, the idea for us is because God is the boss, because he sent Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to give us a way for salvation, and because he is holy, we have to follow him if we want heaven. We don't get to make up rules. We don't get to find another pathway to heaven. There's only one way which man can be saved, and that's in and through Jesus Christ. And as he's the one that has brought us out of Egypt, he's the one that has brought us out of slavery, he's the one that has freed us from sin, freed us from death eternally, to now life eternally, he tells us to consecrate ourselves and to live in holiness. It's not the fun spirit, it's not the cool spirit, it's not the culturally relevant spirit, it's the Holy Spirit. He's not an it, he's the third person of the Trinity. Jesus says he's holy, and then he says he who is true. That is literally he who is genuine. He who is genuine. And there's just something within humanity. Each of us love people who are genuine. People that you can trust. People that you don't have to be second guessing. Man, what angle are they coming at me? Do they just want my discount? Do they just want this connection? Do they just want this? Are they trying to steal from me? I've never heard anyone say, man, I want more fake friends in my life, right? I wish I had more knives in my back, right? I wish I had more more hurt in my heart. No, each of us enjoy having a friend, a family member who is true and authentic. And this morning, Jesus is telling us, hey, I'm holy. But I'm genuine. I'm authentic. Jesus is coming to you this morning saying, there's no side angle. There's no trying to use you and abuse you. He genuinely loves you. And he genuinely likes you. He wants you to die to yourself and to your sin and be alive and resurrected in Jesus Christ. David Guzik said, Jesus is true in all of who he is. He is the real God and he is the real man. And to be as close as we can to a faithful church, we must make sure that we are worshiping and serving the one and true and authentic, the one and true and genuine Jesus Christ. Are you worshiping a knockoff, right? Are you worshiping a fake, right, made in China, made in Taiwan, Jesus, right? Or are you worshiping the one true and authentic Jesus Christ? A couple pages to your left in 1 John 1 John chapter 2, 
1 John chapter 4, we're going to see just three quick verses. We could have a whole Bible study, a whole series of Bible studies speaking about the true attributes of the genuine Jesus. But here's just a handful of them. In 1 John chapter 2.22, it says, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? He is the Antichrist who denies the Father and the Son. So if we are here and denying that Jesus is the Christ, the Christos, the only Savior of humanity, you're not worshiping the one true Jesus. If you're saying there's other ways to heaven, there's eternal scales, if I'm good enough, if I'm religious enough, in the end love wins, there's no hell. If that's what you believe, you are not worshiping the one true Jesus. In 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, John tells us, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. Again, even till today, some people question that Jesus actually came as a man, that he was born of a virgin, that he lived his whole life as a man, showing us how we could defeat Satan, not as a God, but we can defeat Satan as a human being, in flesh, fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, and yet we can still defeat Satan himself. If anyone is here and they deny the fact that Jesus came as a man, came in flesh, it says that they do not know the Spirit of God. Finally, 1 John chapter 4, verse 15, tells us whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And again, many religions today that speak of Jesus as just an off-creation of, of God. He's not the true Son of God. He's not the third person of the Trinity. God is just an angel or someone else. We could turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And there in 2 Corinthians, we will see that this is not a new concern for the church. Right? There's a concern today that many people have created their own variant of Jesus Christ. And oftentimes that, that variant, that knockoff of Jesus Christ is usually very comfortable with who the person is. Comfortable with their sins. Comfortable where they're at. Their Jesus is just in love with who they are and exactly where they're at. And, and that's not the Jesus of the Bible. The Jesus of the Bible told the disciples, leave your nets and come and follow me. The Jesus of the Bible would tell the woman, hey, your sins are forgiven, but go and sin no more. The Jesus of the Bible, right, tells the rich young ruler, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and come and follow me. You see, the Jesus of the Bible is not fine and dandy with where we are at today. But he continually calls us to more holiness and more fellowship with him. That's the true God of the Bible. If we've created our own God who's completely settled and comfortable with our sins and with our shame, we've created our own knockoff version. And there's only one lifeboat that gets us to heaven. That's the one true, genuine, and real Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, we see Paul had the same concern for the church of Corinth. He says in verse 2, For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy. For I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. But I fear, lest somehow as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted 
from the simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who comes preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. What a warning to us this morning. Are you finding a, an easier Jesus to follow? Are you following the Jesus as completely comfortable with all your sins? And every once in a while we hear that as pastors here. We have a difficult conversation with someone and say, but this church says this sin is okay. Right? This, this church says this is okay. This church says that's fine. And then go to, your church, go to that church. But for this church, man, we believe in the simplicity that is in Christ from Genesis to Revelation. Pastor Bill says the Bible is the perfect CAT scan of who Jesus is and of who God is. And we have to be careful that we're not finding, that we're not being corrupted by our own sin and our own flesh to find a fake and not authentic Jesus. The Jesus of the Unitarian Church says that Jesus isn't any more divine than we are. The Jesus of the Jehovah's Witness says that Jesus is God's first creature. He was created. He's in fact the Archangel Michael. The Jesus of Christian science says the historical fleshly person of Jesus doesn't matter. It's just the concept of a Christos, of a concept of Jesus that matters. The Jesus of the Mormons, they believe that he's just part of the spiritual children of Elohim. And these are all fakes. They're all frauds. All belief in any other but the one true Jesus will not get you to heaven. There's only one way which man can be saved and that's in and through the authentic and genuine Jesus Christ of Scripture. We must be faithful to believe in the one true Jesus of the Bible. That's what Jesus tells us. In John 17, 3, he says, And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is the only way to eternal life, that we know God the Father, and we know Jesus Christ whom he has sent. Family, friend, do you have a genuine relationship with the one and only authentic Jesus Christ? Or have you created your own Frankenstein version of Jesus, right? That does whatever you want. He's completely fine with how you treat people. He's fine with your sin. But that's not the one authentic Christ. He continues, says he's holy. Right? He's told us who he is, that he's holy, he is true. And then he tells us, he who has the key of David, who, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Now Jesus, he calls back to attributes found in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22. You can just write it down. It says, the key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut and he shall shut and no one shall open. This is speaking of the authority that Jesus Christ possesses. Just as David had authority in ancient Israel, Jesus has even greater authority today, right? King David, he was the ruler over all of Israel. And specifically here in Isaiah 22, 22 it's speaking of the storehouses and treasures there in Israel. And Jesus said he's the only one that has the key and has the authority to allow people to taste 
of the treasures and storehouses of heaven and also has the authority to tell people they're not allowed to come and taste of the treasures and the goodness of heaven. Jesus is the ultimate doorman. When he opens the door, no one can shut it. And when he shuts it, no one can open it. The thing is, Jesus, he holds two sets of keys. We read the set of keys that he has in Revelation 1.18. A.R. Faust said, he says, It rests with Christ to open or to shut the heavenly palace, deciding who is and who is not to be admitted, as he also opens or shuts the prison, having the keys of hell, of the grave, and of death. Family, ultimately, your relationship and stance with Jesus Christ will decide which door is open for you that you have to step into and will be shut and locked behind you. It's all dependent on our relationship with the one true and authentic Jesus. That's what it's all dependent on that. In verse 8, he says, I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. Once again, as he's told each and every one of the seven churches, I see your works as a church collectively and as church members individually. Jesus sees your work, whether it's a work for the kingdom of heaven or whether it's a work for the kingdom of hell. Whether we think we're doing works for the kingdom of heaven, but truly it's for our own pride and for the devil's work and the devil's workshop. Jesus is drawing their attention. He says, hey, I know your works. And then he tells them, see, that is to behold, I have set before you an open door and no one can shut it. You see, there's something that happens to each and every one of us. Sometimes there's a door open in front of us and we're too busy to realize it. Or there's a door open in front of us, but we're focusing on the wrong thing and we don't notice this incredible door that God has opened for us. Other times we see the open door, but we're not walking in the faith to go through that open door. And here in the context, the open door that is being spoken of is the opportunity to serve and share the gospel. That, that's what God is here telling this church of, the, of Philippians. He's saying, hey, you, uh, Philadelphia, sorry. He's saying, hey, I've set before you an open door. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 9, just write these down. Paul says, for a great and effective door has been opened to me and there are many adversaries, right? The two things here, he's saying, hey, I have an open door to share the gospel, but there's also a ton of adversaries here. Sometimes we think that an open door from God, it means a red carpet, the simplicity. It might as well be those people movers at the airport that you just stand on, right? And God just carries you right through the open door. It doesn't work like that. Paul says, hey, a great and effective door has been opened to me, but there are also many adversaries. In Colossians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul tells us, Meanwhile, praying also for us that God would open to us a door for the word to speak the, the mystery of Christ for which I am also in chains. Again, we need to be praying that God would open a door for us. If Paul asked other people, hey, pray for me that God would open a door, how much more should we be praying the same thing? I think each of us, we have friends, we have family members. We have people that we care about that don't have a relationship with the Lord. We say, man, how can we get them saved? Pray for an open door. Pray for an open door and then be faithful that once God opens that door, we would walk through it. 
Again, Philadelphia was created to evangelize the world with Greek culture, Greek language, and the Greek way of life. However, Jesus is telling this church in Philadelphia, hey, the door is open for you to now evangelize the world with Jesus culture, Jesus language, and the Jesus way of life. And that's our same calling today. There's an open door. There's human beings all around us, right? At least right now, this moment, right? You have human beings around you. I don't know if you leave here and you become a hermit and you've created an attic that you hide in your house. Come up front. We want to pray for you if that's the case. But there's open doors all around us. There's relationships you have created. And are we walking in faith? And every once in a while, there's an open door. There's a softball given to us, right? Man, I'm freaking out at everything that's happening. What do you think is going to happen? That's an open door. Man, I'm scared about life. What happens if I get the virus? What happens if I die? That's an open door. Hey, what did you do Sunday morning? That's an open door. Again, for us to see these open doors. Henry Morris, he says, because Jesus has opened the door, he gets the glory for it. Jesus is the one that opened the door. It wasn't the church of Philadelphia banging the doors down or naming and claiming it in the name of Jesus. Not at all. Jesus says, hey, I have set before you an open door. It wasn't their wealth or their influence. It wasn't their promotional schemes or the eloquence of the pulpit. It wasn't the harmonies of the musicians that gave it an effective ministry. It is the Lord and the Lord alone that opens the door. It's the Lord and the Lord alone that gives the increase. Right? He says he is the Lord of the harvest. So we have to be careful. Sometimes our pride creeps in and, Lord, you're lucky to have me serving you, right? It can creep into our hearts. Yeah, so-and-so, they're trying to serve you, but let me just get in that ministry and watch what's going to happen, right? That's our pride. And we will see in a moment here, right, why did Jesus give them that open door? He continues in Revelation 3, for you have a little strength. You've kept my word, and you have not denied my name. That word strength is that word dunamis, right? It's where we talk about the power of the Holy Spirit, that dunamis power. It speaks of dynamic power. It's where we get our word dynamite from. And here Jesus isn't knocking them. It's not putting them down. He's saying, hey, you have a little bit of dynamic power. And more than likely, this wasn't because of the spiritual state of the church, but it was because they were a small church with little resources. And God says, hey, you do have power. You just have a little bit of it. And the reason why Jesus was giving them this open door and this opportunity is because they had a little strength. And when we realize how little strength we actually have, and we humble ourselves and stick with the Lord, that's when God will use us to do great things. That's when he will open the door, because we won't take the credit, we will give the credit to where it's due, and that's in and through Jesus Christ. Vance Havner, he says, it's not a matter of great strength. It's not great ability, but great dependability. Samson had great ability, but poor dependability. A little strength faithfully used means more than much strength flashly or fitfully used. Family, do you realize how little your strength is? Do you realize how weak we are? Right? God, he gives grace to the humble, but to the prideful, man, he, he blocks them. He pushes them away. Do we have a good handle of what God's grace and mercy actually is? Sometimes you think God's grace and mercy, yeah, I deserve it, right? 
That other brother and sister, they're lucky. They're blessed. They don't deserve God's grace and mercy. But me, I deserve it. You have no handle on God's grace and mercy. God's grace and mercy is realizing no one deserves it. I don't deserve it. I don't get a frequent flyer card at Calvary Chapel, Miami that now makes me deserve more of God's grace and mercy. Or man, I have a gold card. I've been in kiddos ministry for 10 years, so now I definitely deserve God's grace and mercy. We don't deserve it. We have a little strength. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, we could turn there. And man, this great apostle Paul, Hebrew of Hebrews, Pharisee of Pharisees, an incredible man of intellect, of knowledge, of power, and faithfulness. And yet he says all of that is just dunk. All of that is fertilizer. All of that is garbage. My power, it's in and through Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 7. It says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the, re- of the revelations... A thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. He's saying, God has allowed Satan to do this to me to keep me humble. Verse 8, concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Family, do we realize how weak we are? And the key is to realize how weak we are and not loathe in self-pity. There's a lot of people that are really good at that. Man, I fell again. I can't believe it. And we just cry in a corner and wait another month or a year to start serving the Lord again. No, it says, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run into it and are saved. That's the difference. We need to realize our weakness and run to dependence in Jesus Christ. There's a lot of people, they realize their weakness, but then they just wallow in self-pity off to a corner. And they're open game for all the devices of the enemy because they are not running into that strong tower. The righteous run to it and are safe. Are we pressing into Jesus all the more? Do we believe what John tells us that apart from him, we can do nothing? That our life, it's a vapor. We got here by a miracle of God. Our hearts are beating right now by a miracle of God. We're not having aneurysms right now by a miracle of God. And the more we realize that, the more we press into him, the more we will be made strong. Not because of our power, but because of the power of Jesus Christ. There's a warning to us in 2 Chronicles 26, 16. I believe this is King Uzziah. It says, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up. To his destruction. To his destruction. And oftentimes the most dangerous place to be for a believer is when things are strong and when things are safe. When things are strong and safe and we think it's all me. Look at what I've done. When things are going well and we have no reason to press into Christ. When things are going well and we have no reason to constantly be in our word crying out to him. Oftentimes that's where the enemy is ready to pounce. Because we're not being strong in him. We're not, being, uh, we're not abiding in him. And maybe you're here and you're saying, man, I have little strength. 
I can't be used of God because I'm so puny and so small. Hey, you are in great company to serve the Lord. Maybe you're here and you say you only have two mites to your name. You have nothing to give to the Lord. You are at a great place to serve God. Maybe you're here and you say you only have a tiny bit of oil, a little bit of flour. You're going to make one cake, eat it, and die. Hey, you're in a great place to serve the Lord. Maybe you only have five loaves of bread, only two fish, and you have 5,000 people to feed. You're in a great place to start serving the Lord. Perhaps you're faced with a nine-foot killer in front of you, and you only have five rocks and a slingshot. You're in a great place to start serving the Lord. Perhaps you only have an army of 300 men, and you're facing an army of hundreds of thousands. You are in a great place to serve the Lord. Ephesians 6 verse 10 says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And then once we're strong in the Lord and in his power and his might, then we put on the armor of God. Again, are we strong in the Lord? Are we using our weakness and we're just making it as an excuse why we can't serve the Lord? Or are we looking at our weakness and pressing into Christ even more, saying, Lord, if this is your will, God, you do it. Not me, God, it's all you. He says, you have little strength. Then he says, you've kept my word and you have not denied my name. Jesus continues to commend them for keeping his word and for not denying his name. This tells us that the church of Philadelphia, at one point or another, they faced trial and difficulty. And they only possessed little resources and little strength like we talked about. However, they did not buckle to the pressures around them, but they stayed faithful to God's word and they stayed loyal to the one true and genuine Jesus Christ. Family, if we want to hear this commendation of Philadelphia, we need to endure. We need to be faithful. We need to stand strong no matter the pressures and no matter the difficulties. That's the only way we're going to get this commendation is if we continue to keep his word. Line upon line, verse upon verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We need to keep his word. Stay faithful to the word of God. Don't start taking out verses because they convict you. Ah, that one hurt me. I'm taking that one out, right? Don't take verses out because you don't think they apply to you, right? Who are all these people's names? I can't even pronounce them. Out of here, right? Going to skip that. Don't take out words just because you're never going to build a temple and you never need the measurements, right? Don't take, man, read through it. Be faithful to God. It takes faith. It takes faith to get saved. And there's certain portions of Scripture where it takes faith to believe, Lord, this is going to add faith. Hearing and hearing your word, even this, there's certain portions that we're going to need that faith. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, it tells us, Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Family, are we being faithful to the word of God even when it brings a sword into our own homes? That's when the question will remain. Will you be faithful to the word of God? How Jesus says, hey, you think I came to bring peace? I came to bring a sword. Daughter against mother, son versus father. Will we be faithful to God's word then? Acts 2.42, it says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Notice, it wasn't that they continued steadfastly in love. They didn't stay continuing steadfastly in 
helping the community out. They didn't stay steadfastly in intellect. No, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Because the only way we're going to be able to love as Christ has loved us is by staying faithful in God's word. The only way we're going to be able to bless our community is by staying steadfast in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayer. They stayed faithful to the word of God. And I encourage you, stay faithful to the word of God. You want that commendation? Stay faithful. And what God's word has to say about marriage, family, gender, sex, pornography, all of it. Have to stay faithful to it. And what it says about the roles of men and women, the roles of sons and daughters and parents, the roles of the elderly versus those who are younger. Stay faithful to all the truth of God's word. The next thing is that they were loyal to Jesus Christ. They were loyal to Jesus Christ. Oftentimes we want Jesus to fix our homes, fix our marriages, fix our bad work ethic and keep our jobs. But then when something else comes up, we sort of throw him under the bus, right? And then we're just hoping grace and mercy when we get to heaven, he'll let us back in. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 32 and 33, Jesus says, Therefore, whoever confesses me before men, him I will also confess before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, him I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. Jesus was blessed with the loyalty and faithfulness that Philadelphia showed to the word of God and to the genuine, authentic person of Jesus Christ. This, along with their reliance on God and not on their own strength, blessed the heart of Jesus. Bless the heart of the one who has eyes that can pierce and see through everything. He's blessed by this and leaves him with nothing negative to say about this church. Donald Barnhouse, he says, The church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. Oftentimes we measure success in Christian work by other standards of achievement. We need to be careful with this. It's not how big the campus is. It's not how many people are at the service. It's not how many people stood up at the altar call. It's are we staying faithful to God's word? Are we staying faithful to the person of Jesus Christ? And are we dependent and reliant on his strength? This is what Jesus says is a good church. This is what Jesus says is a faithful church. And he's the only one I really care about his perspective on the church, right? Who cares about what other people have to say? We have to look at scripture and say, Lord, what do you have to say Verse 9, indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but a lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Jesus definitely does not hate Jews or the Jewish people. Jesus was a Jewish man, right? All the, all the apostles, the disciples, right? They are Jewish men. Our God, in a sense, is a Jewish God. This, however, was a certain group of People who claimed to be Jewish and yet they were persecuting the Christian church in Philadelphia in one of two ways. Either they were getting these Christians and they were throwing them to the Roman government and having them fed to the lions and persecuting them like that. Or the other idea is that they were Jewish people who were telling Gentile Christians that they had to go back to the Jewish traditions Jewish laws, Jewish festivals, you got to go get circumcised, you got to go to Jerusalem three times a year, and then you can be saved. Jesus says these people were Jewish in name 
and in nothing else. Which is why he says they are of the synagogue, they are of the gathering place of Satan. Again, this is not a title for all Jewish people. He says, hey, indeed I will make them come and worship before your feet to know that I have loved you. Jesus is saying one day you will be vindicated. One day you will be confirmed. And it's the same truth for us today. So often people tell us that we're, we're haters, right? We're so full of hate. We're so evil. We're so hypocritical. Man, Christianity is the worst of the worst. One day we will all be freed from their blame and their guilt. One day we will all be vindicated and confirmed by Jesus Christ himself. And we need to stay patient. We need to endure through all of this. All of humanity, whether in heaven for eternity or hell in eternity, will name the name of Jesus Christ. King of kings, Lord of lords. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They will confess that and then enter into heaven for all of eternity. Or they will confess that and then enter into hell for all of eternity. But every single person will have to say those words. Uh, a song we've been singing every once in a while, it's called, O God of Mercy, Hear Our Plea. It's by Sovereign Grace. And the last verse says, We join creation's longing groan to take your ransomed children home. For then the eyes of all will see that the God of mercy hears our plea. Again, family, one day we will all be vindicated. One day we will be all confirmed. Stay faithful. Stay faithful. Don't worry about their threats. Don't be fearful of their faces. Stay faithful to Jesus Christ. And Jesus promises them that some people from this group, from this synagogue of Satan, will be won over by this open door of the gospel. Some of their eyes will be open to the truth of who Jesus is and the love that he has for the church. And one day they will be converted from death to life and worship alongside of these believers. Again, what an honor, what a blessing to us. That's exactly who Paul was, right? Saul of Tarsus, breathing threats, killing Christians, causing them to blaspheme the name of Jesus. And through much prayer and much endurance, one day he's there alongside of the disciples worshiping with him. In Isaiah 45 verse 14, you could write it down. And the idea here is that those from Egypt, those from Cush, and those from the Sabaeans one day they will bow down to you and they will make supplication to you saying, Surely God is in you. And there is no other. There is no other God. And this should be our first prayer for our enemies. Is to see them converted. David Guzik, he says, The best way to destroy the enemies of the gospel is to pray that God would change their hearts. Is that God would save them. Again, when we have a true grasp of grace and mercy, we realize, man, that person breathing threats against Christianity and against God, they don't deserve the grace just as much as I don't deserve it. Jesus tells you in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, he tells you, he tells me, I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, and pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. If I'm honest, this is something I struggle with, right? I think whether it's because our culture, being Americans, 
or then our culture of being Hispanic and Americans, we like vengeance, right? I'll be honest, I love revenge, right? The movies we like to watch is the action movies where the good guy gets all the bad guys, right? And he wipes it out. He gets revenge and vengeance for everything. But we, in the new culture of Jesus Christ, are to pray for our enemies. And some of us say, yeah, I pray for my enemies like David prayed, right? Psalm 58, verse 6, break their teeth in their mouth, oh God, right? That's not the prayers we're to be praying. We're to pray that, Lord, that you would save them. Lord, open their eyes. Lord, change their hearts. Lord, take that heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. Again, one way or the other, they're going to see who God truly is. They're going to see his true love for us. And they're going to see that we were right all along. Let's just hope and pray that they see it in heaven alongside of us. Verse 10, because you've kept my command to persevere. You have kept my command to persevere. Jesus commands each and every one of us to persevere. He commands us to have patience, to have steadfastness, to have constancy, to have endurance. This is a commandment for each and every one of us. This is the New Testament characteristic of a man or a woman who is not swerved from their deliberate purpose and their loyalty to the faith and dutifulness in religion by even the greatest trial and sufferings. Our world today is sucking the life out of grit and out of toughness. Our world today is downplaying that completely. Calling it something that's toxic, something that's evil. But it's a biblical command for each and every one of us. That no matter the trial, no matter the sufferings, God and Jesus Christ command us, hey, endure. Stay steadfast. Don't swerve away from your deliberate purpose, your loyalty, and the duty we are called to in this beautiful relationship with Jesus Christ. Notice in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, this is where Jesus gives us the answer to the parable of the sower throwing the seed. In Luke 18, verse 15, Jesus says, But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. We are to keep God's word, we're to protect it in our hearts, and we need to bear fruit and have endurance. These are the marks of a true Christian. A true believer will have an enduring faith. And each and every one of us, if we are truly that believer, we're supposed to keep God's word in our heart. There should be fruit, our life should be fruitful, and we need to endure No matter the trial, no matter the tribulation. Jesus being face to face with the difficulty of the cross. Being separated from God the Father and God the Holy Spirit for the first time in all of history. All of eternity. Says he set his face like a flint. He saw the difficulty and he pressed in and through it. Family, we are called to endure no matter what difficulty we go through. And if we endure in the small difficulties, in the small tribulations of this life, then Jesus promises us that we will not have to go through the great tribulation. What a reward for us that if we stay faithful, if we endure, if we have the true faith that endures, we will not go through that great tribulation. 
The end of verse 10 says, I will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Again, they'd be kept from the great tribulation. This test for those who dwell on earth, it's not for the believer, it's for the unbeliever. A couple verses very quickly. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 6 tells us that Jesus has made us alive together with him and has raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 3 verse 20 and 21, it tells us our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body that it may be conformed to his glorious body. Finally, Colossians chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, it says, For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Again, we will not have to taste of the great tribulation if we have that true faith, that true Christianity that will endure through the trials, through the tribulations. We belong to him and we will be with him. We will be made to sit together with Christ. Our citizenship is in heaven. Our bodies will be transformed When we die, we will appear with him in glory. And one day he will draw all believers with him in glory. That's what he continues in verse 11. Behold, I am coming quickly. A healthy Christian, a healthy church, lives with a constant preparedness and readiness for the rapture of Jesus Christ. This is one of the marks of This great awakening, this revival, the people said, man, we have to share the gospel because Jesus can come at any moment. The Roman Catholic Church, they got rid of the the pre-tribulation rapture, mostly because of their hatred towards the Jewish people. They didn't want any room for that, so that's why they got rid of the rapture completely. This word quickly, it's not necessarily speaking about something happening immediately, but something that happens suddenly and unexpected. And it is healthy for us as Christians to believe and know that his word says that he can return at any moment. And when he returns, it's going to be in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye. It is healthy for us to know that. It is healthy for us to know that first he will return for his church. And then he will come back with his church. Jesus, he's come once. Next time he's going to come, not touch the earth. He's going to take us with him in the rapture. We're going to be with him for seven years, and then we will come back with his church. This hope purifies us. I don't know about your homes, right? Maybe your homes are perfectly cleaned at all times, right? All hours of the day, you get a white glove, and man, there's no dust anywhere, right? But if your home is ever messy, what is the quickest way to get it clean? People are coming over, right? People are coming over. Then what happens? It's a mad dash. Everybody starts working, start yelling at the kids. You start doing this, you start doing this, right? And in 10, 15 minutes, there's some semblance of cleanness and neatness within your home. It is a hope that purifies us. It purifies our home. It cleanses our home. If we think, man, someone's coming every night, every day at any moment, our homes are going to be clean. And yet, for whatever reason, we take the gospel literally. We take heaven and hell literally. But today, in many churches, they want to say the rapture is not literal. 
It's just an idea. It's just a belief. It's just in the clouds. It is a literal coming again of Jesus Christ to take his church. And oftentimes you say, man, it's Calvary Chapel. We've been saying that for 100 years already. It still hasn't happened. Church fathers have been believing this for thousands of years. It still hasn't happened. Hey, in Genesis 3.15, when God gave the gospel that one day he would crush Satan's head, it took thousands of years before Jesus was born. When Isaiah gave the prophecy that one day Emmanuel, God, will be with us and be born of a virgin, it took thousands of years for that to happen. So again, for us to sit here and say just because he hasn't come back yet, forget about it, it's garbage, we need to be careful about that. It is a hope that purifies us. Then he tells them, hold fast what you have. Hey, you have these marks of faithfulness. You have these marks of loyalty. You have these marks of endurance. But we need to continually be faithful. We need to continually endure. And we need to continually be loyal. Right? What makes a great long distance, a long endurance athlete is that they endure during the whole race. Right? A great long-distance athlete, they don't endure for half the race and then get a golf cart and finish the rest, right? You have to endure the whole time. What makes a great marriage, it's a marriage that is loyal and endures till death does make them part, right? When you see a marriage that's been together for 40 years and then they get a divorce, you don't say, man, what a loyal marriage. What a great marriage. No, your, your heart breaks, And this is sort of the difficulty that this mark of faithfulness, endurance, and loyalty, we need to stay in these things. We need to hold fast to these things till the day we see Jesus face to face. So what what are those three things? Number one, reliance on God and not our own strength. We need to hold fast to that reliance on God and not on our own strength. He commended them, hey, you have little strength. Second thing is faithfulness to the word of God. Being faithful to the word of God. Genesis to Revelation. You have kept my word. Lastly, that third thing that we have to hold fast to is loyalty to the one authentic and genuine Jesus Christ. We have to stay loyal to him. You have not denied my name. If we don't have these three things, man, may we pray to God that we would begin to possess them and walk in faith that we have them. And if we're blessed, we have these three things, man, hold fast to them. Stay loyal, stay faithful, and continue to endure. He tells them to endure. He tells them to hold fast that no one may take your crown. This isn't the crown of someone who's born of royal birth, but instead is the crown given to the victor. This is not speaking of our salvation, that we got to be freaking out that if we don't endure, that our salvation is going to be taken by someone else. No, this is saying that we can lose rewards in heaven if we don't stay faithful and if we don't endure. We have to stay reliant on the Lord and his strength. We have to stay faithful to the word of God, and we have to stay loyal to the genuine and authentic Jesus Christ. A.R. Falsetti says, they would lose their crown if they yielded to the temptation of exchanging consistency and suffering for compromise and ease. And is that not always the trade? That's always the trade. Why stay consistent? Why go through this suffering? Let's go with compromise and ease. And we face it every day. Whether it's with our kids, whether it's with our diet, whether it's our reading our Bible every day, whether it's attending church consistently, 
This temptation is always there. But may we press into Christ that we can stay faithful and endure. That our crown, it's not that someone else is going to take it from us, but is that that victor's crown will be given to someone else who was faithful, who did endure, and who was loyal. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 18, Paul says, Let no one cheat you of your reward. Let no one cheat you of your reward. And guys, someone is always out there trying to steal your crown. Someone is always out there trying to cheat you from your reward. Do you know who that person is? The man or the woman in the mirror. They are always trying to get us to give up that reward. Vance Havner, he says, Never forget that the man most likely to steal your crown is yourself. Proverbs 4.23, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. You are in no greater danger from anyone or anything than from yourself. Right? There's that difficult truth. Our greatest enemy is the double agent living inside each and every one of us. There's a double agent living in us. And I tell you, I tell myself, starve that sucker. Starve him. Don't give in to your flesh. Don't give in to the garbage on television, the garbage of music. That is feeding the flesh and that double agent. Continue to starve him and feed the spiritual man. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. We've looked at this theme of being an overcomer. It's a true Christian. We are overcomers if we have that true, genuine, enduring faith. Later on, you can look at 1 John 2, 1 John 4, and 1 John 5. It speaks of those who overcome the world. And being an overcomer and not being pushed into the mold of this world is yet another characteristic of a true believer in Jesus Christ. And to the true believer in Jesus Christ... Jesus has promises for us. He says, hey, I will make you a pillar in the temple of my God. This pillar represents strength, represents stability, and represents dignified beauty. In Philadelphia and other Roman cities, leaders would celebrate their good citizens by inscribing their name on these marble and granite pillars all throughout the city. And Jesus promises us, if we hold fast to these things, he will make us into pillars in the kingdom of God and in his temple. And what does that signify? Is that we won't be movable. We won't have to worry that we're going to be in heaven and blow it, right? Zach, sorry, you blew it. You're out of here, right? No more pearly gates for you. You got to go back down under, right? It doesn't work that way. Once we're saved, once we're endured, we're there in heaven for all of eternity. We're all in there. And the door is locked from enemies coming in and from some of us being foolish and getting out. These pillars is who one day we will be if we continue to, man, stay faithful and locked into Christ. We've talked about Philadelphia, how they were near lots of volcanic activity, how they had frequent earthquakes. And the people were sort of fearful of these earthquakes and would live outside of the city for periods of time every time an earthquake happened. Jesus promises us that if we hold fast to these things, we will be together with him for all of eternity. And we won't have to be fearful of anything. We won't have to be fearful of any earthquake. We won't have to be fearful about going out or coming in. Once we are there in heaven, there will be no more fear and there will be no more battling 
with our flesh. He continues, he says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. Again, as those pillars in Roman times would be inscribed with the citizens that the kings were proud of, we will be inscribed by our king. Right? There's a set of movies I love. They're near and dear to my heart. It's Toy Story 1 through 4, right? And each and every one of these toys, they're marked with love by their owner. And they get the name Andy written on the bottom of their foot or somewhere on them. For us personally, we will be given these new identities or perhaps an identity that hopefully we already have but it will be made true from now and forevermore when we see our Lord and Savior face to face. He will inscribe his name upon us. He'll say, hey, this one is one of mine. Our identity will once and for all be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We will be written on the city that we belong to which is the new Jerusalem. And one day he's going to give each of us a brand new name. Our identity will once and for all be with Jesus Christ. And what a privilege that he wants to identify with us. What a privilege that he wants to write his name on you and I. Verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, I think every believer in their right mind, they want to be the church of Philadelphia. I don't want to have God say anything bad about me, but are we paying attention to what they were doing and who they were? Do we have that relationship with the genuine Jesus Christ? Again, he is the only way to heaven. No knockoff, only the one and true authentic Jesus Christ. Do we have hearts of humility that we are completely reliant on the power of Christ and not on our own strength? Are we sticking to the word of God? Even when it stings, even when it may bring a sword into our families, are we staying faithful to the word of God? Are we staying loyal to the name of Jesus Christ? Even if it may get us into trouble, even if we may lose our jobs, lose people that we love, are we staying loyal to the name of Jesus Christ? And finally, are we seeing the open door and walking through it? Are we seeing the people in our communities, the people we work with, the people we see at parties, the people you might see at the party tonight? Are you seeing that as an open door to share the gospel? Worship team, if you can come up. Pastors, if you can come up. Short story here. It says, a man once came to Charles Spurgeon and asked him, how could he win other people to Jesus? Spurgeon asked him, what are you and what do you do? That man said, I'm the engine driver of a train. Then said Spurgeon, is the man who shovels the coal next to you on the train, is he a Christian? I don't know, said the man. Go back, said Spurgeon, and find out and start on him. Again, oftentimes we want these great huge movements of God and they begin with us. They begin with each and every one of us taking a step of faith and saying, Lord, maybe this is an open door. Maybe this is an open door. Maybe you want to use this conversation to lead this man or this woman to you. Again, if we have these things, if we possess these things, let's hold fast to them. If we do not have these things, let's cry out to God who will answer us, especially in these biblical prayers. Let's ask in faith and then walk in faith that our Heavenly Father wants us to walk in these things. Hey, let's all stand and we'll close in song.
If you need prayer, come up front, pray with one of the pastors. Maybe you realize you have some knockoff version of Jesus, right? It's a little tweaky, it's a little messed up, it's a little weird. It's not the one authentic Jesus, man. Come up front, pray, receive the one true authentic Jesus. Maybe you're lacking in one of these other areas. Man, come up front, pastors would love to pray with you. Lord, we just love you and God, help us to endure, Lord. It's not of our own strength, Lord. It can only be if we are abiding in you, Lord. If we're connected to you, if we're grafted into this vine and stay with you, Lord. So, Lord, strengthen us, Lord. Open our eyes to see our true weakness, Lord. Forgive me, Lord, for how often I'm prideful, Lord, and I think it's my work or my sweat, Lord. Help us, Lord, to work in diligence, but know you are the Lord of the harvest. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Lord, move in our hearts again. May we cry out to you, Lord. May we know that one day each and every one of us will be vindicated, will be confirmed that we are in you and we are with Jesus Christ. We love you and we thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen.